Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's episode is going to be a ton of fun because we're going to talk about psychedelics. We're going to talk about stress. We're going to talk about anxiety. And we're going to talk about vibrations. And no, I don't mean like having good vibes, although we'll probably talk about that too. I mean the kind of vibrations that physically affect your mitochondria, your cells, even your nervous system and things like that. Dr. Dave Rabin is a neuroscientist, board-certified psychiatrist, health tech entrepreneur, inventor, researcher, and a guy who's in clinical practice specialized in mental health disorders that are resistant to treatment, things like PTSD, things like substance abuse. And he's looked at chronic stress in humans for more than a decade and has some really good ideas on what we can do about it. So if you're ready to go deep, let's go. Dr. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Dave, you're a weird guy. You've studied psychodynamic psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, motivational interviewing, oh, and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, medication-assisted psychotherapy, and things like that as well as, we're going to get into it later, the Apollo Neuro, the device that uses vibrations to hack the nervous system. It's pretty esoteric and pretty wide-ranging. I think a lot of people don't see how all of these things, sort of what they have in common. It's pretty esoteric and pretty wide-ranging. I think a lot of people don't see how all of these things, sort of what they have in common. And for me, it was all about um, what you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, treatment resistant illnesses have always fascinated me. Consciousness has always fascinated me and trying to understand how and why we think and do the things we do. And ultimately, um, you know, throughout my medical training, I worked with a lot of people who, you know, we were told by the book, prescribe this, follow this path of treatment. Um, and this will work for your patient this percentage of the time. And, it turns out that maybe some of those percentages of the time are a bit inflated um, and that a lot of Western treatments do work in very specific groups of patients. But there are a lot of patients, for example, in cases of post-traumatic stress disorder and addiction, where over 50 percent of our patients are considered to be treatment resistant. And so all of these techniques that you mentioned that I that I've learned and used with my patients over the years, I really wanted to learn and master so that I could have a whole box of tools that I could use with anyone that came to me and not just say, well, we're just going to do this by the book because we're humans. You know, we don't have a by the book. There's no book on this is how you treat a human's illness. Um, there are lots of books that talk about little different angles for approach, but ultimately the more tools we have in our toolbox, the better we can deliver care to people. And so for me, it was really about exploring all the angles of consciousness. Some of that is Freudian in the term, you know, in the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic side. Um, some of it is Jungian with dream analysis. Some of it is, you know, more empath empathic based with, you know, empathy and tr connecting with your patients eye to eye in the case of cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing and interpersonal therapy and psychedelic therapy. And so bringing all of these together really helped me to understand that when my, when my patients, my clients don't respond to one thing or another, that I have something else I can draw on that can really customize and curate treatment for people. And it works a lot better. And I have great results in my practice as a result. All right. So that means that either you had treatment resistant stuff in you or your family, uh, or uh, you have no idea why you do what you do and it pissed you off so much you had to figure it out. <laughs> uh, or someone around you did a bunch of stuff you couldn't understand you had to figure it out. Which one of those three was it? 
Um, perhaps all three, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think I just just to, you know to be blunt, one of the things that really dri- drives me was was the opioid crisis. Um, I think very few of us have been untouched by the opioid crisis. I have had friends accidentally overdose in my own home. Um, I have had at parties, or how do you accidentally overdose in your own no, home? They were people who didn't understand which medicines were not supposed to be mixed. Oh, they and were so mixing. They okay. were pres- so they pres- were prescribed multiple medicines like benzodiazepines and opioids, and they accidentally mix them together. And of mm. course, what happens? You get this dramatic synergy of sedating effect, which suppresses breathing. And so, you know, many people don't realize that when you're in pain that you can actually harm yourself by mixing medications in a way that um, isn't the body is not quite yeah. ready or able to deal with. And, I, and having been touched by this in, in many ways throughout my life and seeing the struggle that others have gone through and also having different forms of pain in my life, you know, from emotional strife and, and difficulty all the way through physical pain, which more recently was in the form of, uh, of a tooth infection that was so painful oh, yeah. that I literally could not think it was, the most, it was the worst pain, Dave, I've ever had in my life. <laughs> it's brutal. It, was so, it was so painful. It was like literally humbling me to the point where it made me realize for the very first time what my patients with chronic pain were going through, where I could not think about anything in my life except how to not be in pain. And I would have done anything to make that pain go away. And when you're in that situation, it's very clear why people seek some of these medicines like opioids when they're prescribed. Because if a doctor would have handed me in that moment a Vicodin or a hydrocodone and said, it's okay to take this, it will make you feel better, and it does, why would I not take it, right? Did you I take mean, it's it? Like a, I did, yeah. because I needed to. Good move. But I only took it for a week, and yeah. then I had my procedure, and it was over. And I knew the risks going into it because I, because I use these medicines in my practice occasionally, and I work with people who use them all the time. So, again, knowing the risks helped me guide my own treatment. But nobody warned me and said, these are addictive, these could harm you. I only knew that from my own practice. So I think seeing the outcomes of the lack of education in this area, the lack of education even of doctors to understand how to treat people adequately with these medicines, and that we also have a huge wealth of other medicine like ketamine, like MDMA, which is around the corner, like psilocybin, which is around the corner, and then technology like Oura-Ring, Apollo, and these different technologies that can help facilitate increased um, you know, quality of life. It's, you know, for up for me, it's about really going back to the origins of the Hippocratic Oath in terms of harm reduction and how can we give you the greatest benefit for the least possible risk? I thought the Hippocratic Oath was first do no harm, not reduce risk. Well, right. First do no harm. Well, do, doesn't that mean then that you basically can't be a doctor because you're always taking risks? So I think we have to take some degree <laughs> of risk, but I think that there are ways to provide medical care, for instance, that take less risk to start. There you go. So, for example, starting with psychotherapy with someone with depression always generally works better as long as the therapist has a good relationship with the patient and you have a good therapist than prescribing an antidepressant right off the bat. And that's just one example. CBD, cannabidiol, if it's the proper medicine that's you know made in the proper way without contaminants like herbicides or pesticides, also has incredible results for mood stabilization and energy balance and, and even uh, GI and chronic pain type things. So having options that we know about, like things such as CBD or therapy and, and, or technology that don't have 
side effects or addiction risk are always better to start with, which is why I think that first do no harm uh, primum non nocere in, in Latin is so critical for us to remember. It, it seems like that's held back a lot of medicine. It, you get these these situations where, well, you know, you're probably going to die in two years. And I could do this thing now and it has a 20% chance of harming you and an 80% chance of dramatically improving your quality of life. But you're like, if I follow the Hippocratic Oath, I'm not allowed to give you the thing that's going to either give you relief or maybe give you another 20 years of life. And it's that inherent contradiction in medical treatment that has prevented uh, some of the most impactful therapies from coming out there. For instance, you mentioned CBD. Okay, well... You know, maybe it's harmful. We haven't seen enough studies yet. So here, have some antidepressants, right? It, it's that, that fear of doing harm. Do you think that the Hippocratic Oath is right? Or should it say, you know, do, do for your patients what you would do for your dad? Do you think that the Hippocratic Oath is right? Or should it say, you know, do, do for your patients what you would do for your dad? So I think that do for your patients what you would do for your your father your mother and do no harm are actually one and the same i think our society confuses them a little bit um you know thinking about antidepressants is a great example right antidepressants are fda approved for better or for worse for depression and anxiety and also things like ocd and some antidepressants are even approved for ptsd however what we forget is that when you look at the statistics that matter, which are number one, number needed to treat, which is how many people do I need to prescribe this treatment for, for them to experience a symptom relief that's anything significant, versus how many people do I need to prescribe this medicine or this treatment for that could give some kind of side effect or harm, which is called the number needed to harm. It yeah. turns out that we always want, as you might imagine, the number needed to treat to be lower than the number needed to harm. We want the medicine to have a greater likelihood of reducing symptoms than of causing harm or side effects. And when you look at medicines that are approved, like antidepressants, um, what we act, and antipsychotics actually for that matter, what we actually see uh, is that there is a greater number needed to treat than number needed to harm. So the numbers are reversed in the direction that's opposite of what we want. There's actually a greater chance of receiving side effects or the patient experiencing side effects from the medicine than there is of actually experiencing sufficient significant symptom remission or relief. Right. So that is the, those are the statistics that really matter. When you look at something like CBD, sure, maybe we don't have the same degree of clinical trials behind it, but CBD and hemp and uh, cannabis in general has been used for thousands of years safely prior to 1920, right? Cannabis was a mainstay of treatment for many different illnesses, and you can't kill yourself, and the side effects are relatively low. When you think about overdosing on an antidepressant, many antidepressants for many years actually could kill you. Things like tricyclic antidepressants, MAOIs, um, antipsychotics can kill you if you take too much. It's rare, but it can happen. The number needed to kill with cannabis is basically unheard of. It's, it's negligible. So I think when we talk about, you know, what the Hippocratic Oath really means, it's really about these two statistics and prioritizing, you know, treatments that have a very good chance of giving you relief, but that have a very low chance of causing harm. And I think the reason why that's important is because of something that you're very interested in, which is innovative treatments in the biohacking space, um, innovative treatments in the psychedelic space. Many of these, these interventions, many of the interventions you talk about are very interesting because 
they actually have a very low chance of causing yeah. harm and they're not going to help everyone, but they could help a lot of people. And so having that education about what statistics really matter, which unfortunately is, you know, few and far between, and it's not even taught that well in medical school, to be honest, is something that can help guide us to really understand what the Hippocratic Oath was trying to say. You know, uh, Hippocrates, for example, I think would be greatly in favor of a lot of the treatments you recommend. You know, food as medicine was one of the things that he oh, prioritized yeah. in his life, right? So, so that is something that if we can, and also I think the idea of can we teach our patients how to heal themselves rather than making them dependent on a health system to give them wellness and give them well-being, right? Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I accept that. And it's, it's one of those things where when you're dealing with the mushy stuff, it always seems so double-edged. And my wife, by the way, uh, was a drug and alcohol addiction emergency room doctor uh, in Stockholm. So we've had these conversations over dinner and all, and even with you know the, the, the painkillers that can be addictive. Well, addiction could be some harm, but reduction of pain is so important. I remember when I was a, a raw vegan, I shattered a tooth, which is actually very common from plant-based diets. Sorry, vegans, if you're listening, I'm not trying to offend you. This happened to me. <laughs> so that pain- Very painful. I'm like, I had a really big meeting at work and I worked for a, it was a, a pretty intense time in my career. And I just, I remember calling in and telling my senior VP, uh, hey, I'm not coming to the meeting this morning. I have a dental emergency. And he's like, what the hell? And, and I'm like, it's probably those big green drinks I'm drinking. And- uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it was disabling. I, I could barely drive. And, Absolutely. Uh, so what I used to do, though, is I'd say, look, I am logical. I can deal with pain. I am not going to take a painkiller because that's a sign of weakness. What was wrong with that mindset? So I, so I think that that mindset is part of this suck it up mindset that we have propagated in our in our world you know particularly in the united states particularly in western culture in general we see it in medicine you know doctors have this huge rate of burnout why because we are not encouraged to seek mental health care for ourselves we're encouraged to literally work ourselves into the ground to provide care for others while neglecting our own self-care and our families and our well-being um, and joe dr joe maroon who is um, a neurosurgeon who experienced his own burnout and wrote a book on it called Square One um, talks about this extraordinarily eloquently um, and about and calls and talks about going back to the square um, square one, which is you know your uh, on one line it's your work, your um, emotional life, your spiritual life, and your physical life, and they should all be in balance. And if they're not in balance, then that is a sign that it's time to change your priorities up a little bit in our lives. And one of those is how we deal with pain, right? So going back to what you mentioned earlier, using a painkiller like an opioid narcotic, opioid narcotics are a brilliant invention. I mean, they're incredibly useful for acute short-term pain. If you have a toothache, if you have broken bone, if you're going into surgery, if you need to something like that to help you with pain in the short term, fantastic medicine. The problem is when they start getting prescribed for long-term use, which unfortunately is when they're actually not indicated and they get used off-label frequently, which is what results in addiction. But that's when you we make the most money, though, our it, isn't it? When they get... <laughs> I mean, that's when, unfortunately, some people do. I would hope no, I, that I know. there's <laughs> less and less of those people around now that Purdue declared bankruptcy. Yeah, exactly. We'll Thank, thanks. Thankfully, that happened. Uh, so th there's an economic incentive that perversely combines with human behavioral things like that, uh, and that's when we oftentimes get in trouble. All right. 
So if pain is a stressor, right? We're, we're dealing with chronic stress though, and, and there's different kinds of pain. And since you're an expert in, in chronic stress, talk to me about the other things besides pain, at least besides physical pain, that are stressors and, and how that's driving people right now. That's a great question. Um, and I think the reason is because we have not sufficiently, and, and you know, as part of the medical community, the medical community has really struggled explaining this to the, to the general population in a much more understandable and logical way. And what's really fascinating is a paper that was published by Tor Wager um, in a collaboration with the University of Pittsburgh several years ago, might have been over a decade now, where they actually looked at emotional pain versus physical pain on fMRI. And what's really fascinating, functional magnetic resonance imaging is a really incredible form of live brain imaging that doesn't involve radiation. And so what's really incredible about what they found is that emotional pain and physical pain are virtually indistinguishable in the brain. So if you're looking at the brain signature of these forms of pain, they look the same. You can't really tell the difference unless you talk to the person. And so what does that mean? Well, we know from as physicians and just from common sense in our day-to-day lives, when we're stressed out emotionally or mentally, and we have something that causes us pain, it typically worsens the pain. And when we have pain, it typically worsens our emotional and mental stress. And so it creates this positive feedback loop of inflammation which is rooted in the autonomic nervous system. So I think you talk about this quite a bit, this balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems, which the sympathetic system is commonly known as the fight or flight or freeze response system. And this is involved in effectively maintaining survival in the face of acute threat. So if we're running from a bear, we're out of water, we're running out of air, we're running out of food, we're running out of shelter, our family's in danger right then and there, That is when we want that system to kick in and send all our blood and resources to our lungs, heart, motor cortex of our brains, and our perceptive cortexes to be able to understand the environment and get out of that situation as quickly as possible to safety. That's when it's time to basically kick ass, and it's all the energy to do that, okay? Right. However, that system, when activated all the time, ends up taking resources away from the parasympathetic system, which is essential for recovery. So the parasympathetic system is what's often referred to as the rest and digest system. And this system is involved in not just rest and digesting, but also sexual reproduction, creativity, um, all of GI, GI uh, gastro, you know, gastroenterologic um, functioning of the gut, um, absorption of food, um, being able to meditate and to fall asleep and get restful sleep. And that system is triggered by safety. So when we're running from a lion or in an acute stress response that our sympathetic system, the stress response system is very high and active, it drops activity and takes resources away from the parasympathetic system because we're not safe. And the lack of safety has been identified in the body in that moment. However, when we get into a safe situation, we want that to completely reverse and we want the safety to trigger our recovery system to turn on so that the next time a threat comes, we're ready to respond right away. The problem is those of us who are in this current day-to-day life with constant emails that we can't shut down and mm-hmm. we can't ignore, um, our kids screaming all the time or being trapped because they're trapped at home with us, the pandemic and the threat of getting sick, um, traffic, work responsibilities, 
add on every little thing, making sure we take our, our supplements or our medicines every day and you know, at the right time. All of these things add little stressors to our lives and it tricks our bodies and our minds into thinking that we're in a fight or flight survival situation all the time, which literally shuts our recovery system down. So focusing on a lot of the techniques that we do in psychology and psychiatry and where psychology and psychiatry is going in terms of the future of mental health is helping to teach our clients how to stimulate that safety response system using techniques like deep breathing, meditation, yoga, nutrition, um, proper, you know, good levels of exercise that are healthy, not overtraining, but healthy levels of exercise. And then techniques like Apollo, soothing touch, massage, all of these things form this ecosystem of safety enhancing therapy. So let's talk about Apollo for a minute. You mentioned a few times, I mentioned it a few times. It's a little watch-like thing that vibrates. Now you could say, like, hey, my Apple watch vibrates. Except that, and okay, guys, I'm, I'm going to assume that most of you have read at least one of my books. But if you read The Bulletproof Diet or you read Headstrong and probably also uh, my most recent one, Superhuman, uh, I talk about how there's signals from the environment that goes in and talks to your cells. And whole body vibration is a technique that I've used for almost 10 years. And they've just found out that shaking the body up and down changes cell membranes. Actually, we've known that for a while through a piezoelectric effect. And we know that it talks to mitochondria and they just found out that it affects your gut biome, actually, that shaking changes your gut bacteria. So vibration is a signal from the environment, the definition of biohacking. It's amazing. It it changed the environment around you and inside of you so they have control of your own biology. So targeted vibrations, physical vibrations over acupressure points Gee, could they have an effect? Yes. Do they? Well, I don't know. Is that why in Tibetan medicine and Chinese medicine, they'll actually like tap certain regions? Of course, that's why. Mm-hmm. So um, Dr. Dave went deep in the science and came up with a device that does it. And it's cool. And it's totally in line with biohacking. Uh, so now that I described for people who are like, oh, vibrations, that sounds stupid. No, it doesn't sound stupid. It actually sounds smart. And it sounds like it's tied in with ancient knowledge, but it's got data. Uh, so there's your framing. So you can now tell people what you actually did since now their disbelief has been dissipated. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> and I appreciate you taking the time to try it out. I, uh, it's been a huge game changer for us, especially in the time of pandemic. I, I use it every day just to help keep me in, uh, in the zone effectively. And, and that's really what we developed it for originally was to help um, boost safety signals in the brain that help people who have experienced trauma and now I think it's easy for us to say that there's not a single person on the face of this earth who has not experienced some degree of trauma, which trauma by nature is one or multiple intense, meaningful events that are considered to be negative by us that leave us feeling stressed or afraid or fearful. And so what's interesting is that when I was doing my research at the University of Pittsburgh, I was working with a lot of people with PTSD, severe trauma that was untreatable by anything else. These people would come to me, they'd be on five to 10 different medicines for years and not having any significant relief um, and going to psychotherapy. And so I started to recognize that through talking to them and through working with them for years that their stress response system and their sympathetic and parasympathetic balance was totally out of whack. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. 
But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. Through talking to them and through working with them for years, that their stress response system and their this sympathetic and parasympathetic balance was totally out of whack. They were always in this high sympathetic state and their body showed it. They would shake, they would sweat easily, their heart rate was always faster, their heart rate variability, a sign of resilience was always very low and they were terrible at adapting to change in their lives. Change itself was so scary to them that they even could, had trouble embracing the changes involved in the healing process. And so we started to look at, you know, well, I can help these people through empathic listening and all these psychotherapy techniques feel safe with me in the office. But what about when they leave? You know, they don't have me there. There's no therapist there with them all the time. Um, they can't always be in their cognitive behavioral therapy exposure mode um, where they have a therapist with them guiding them through their lives. So how can we sort of hack in or tap into the nervous system in a way that helps to provide safety signals to the brain that remind us that we're actually safe and not threatened in our day-to-day -day lives? People who have PTSD and trauma and addiction, they, they often feel afraid and threatened every moment of every day. So what do we do? We teach them deep breathing, meditation, yoga, but these are really hard and they take a lot of time. Well, so there's, there's something that's worth noting there. So people who have PTSD, the vast majority of them don't know they feel afraid all the time. And I say this from personal experience, like, I'm not afraid. Right. There's nothing to be afraid of. Are you kidding? Like, right. I'll just kick your ass. Like, I'm going to succeed and, you know, I'll, I'll win and, and whatever. But until you, at least in my case, until I saw you know, data on an EEG, like, oh, a phone rings and just uh, my fight or flight's through the roof. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, my mm -hmm. body is totally responding. So it, you could be listening to this going, yeah, whatever, that's not me. But most people have some trauma and a lot of people have some PTSD and some people have a ton of PTSD. I had a ton uh, and it was very, very early childhood stuff, like birth-related things. And then others have you know bullying experiences and whatever else. So mm -hmm. it's just a bigger thing than people would think. So I don't want listeners to say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Because the bottom line is we all have some chronic stress, some more than others. Mm -hmm. And a huge percentage of people have some PTSD-like stuff some of the time. Uh, and some people have none. But you probably don't know if you have it <laughs> unless you've actually focused on learning it. Anyway, that, that was a little bit of a PSA there. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that because trauma is very much stigmatized in our society. Yeah. And But it's really, you know, forgetting about the word trauma, what we're really talking about is one or multiple negative meaningful events over time. Yeah. We've all had these experiences and they all impact our lives and they impact the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world around us. Um, it could be like the first time you watched a war movie to some first time you had a terrible nightmare or the first time that somebody bullied you in school, as you said, you know, uh, these things are dramatically impactful to us. And until we take the time to look at ourselves and and try to understand what makes us who we are, you sometimes they evade us. Right. And they elude yeah. us to the point where we don't realize that we act in ways that are reflective of these things that have happened to us. Positive things impact us in a similar way. But hopefully towards positive outcomes. So what's interesting is we tried to interrupt this pathway. And one of the 
um, best ways that we found that, you know, going back into the evolutionary psychology um, field was human touch and music. Human touch and music, it turns out, human touch being even older than music, of course, but these go back hundreds, uh, or, you know, as long as humanity has been around, but, you know, also pre-human, especially with touch. And ancient mammals will will nuzzle each other or hug each other to convey safety to their families, their loved ones, etc. And this is a very powerful, hardwired neural pathway that exists from the skin to the brain that might go back as far as ancient uh, Aplysia sea snails, which are 300 million years old in Eric Kandel's work, who won the Nobel Prize in 2000. He's, he's been on the show. He's great. Uh, he's incredible. Uh, I mean, just an incredible scientist and human being yeah. um, who's delivered some of the best findings of, uh, you know, about learning and memory to our, our civilization. And, you know, what we can really understand from that is that as we learn negative uh, situations or have negative associations with things around our lives, we build stronger neural pathways to those negative things and like stress. And as we learn positive associations, we build stronger positive pathways. So Apollo was created based on the fact that we mapped out human touch and we mapped out the pathways from the skin to the brain and said, if we can, if human touch, like getting a hug on a bad day or somebody holding your hand can send a signal to the brain instantly that says, if I have time to pay attention to this feeling right now, this person holding my hand or hugging me, I can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment, right? Similar with a deep breath. If I have time to pay attention to this deep breath coming into my nose and mouth and lungs, then I can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. And so that instant and mostly subconscious feedback loop, we thought we could tap into using technology that delivered these very gentle vibrations to the skin that feel like somebody holding your hand or feel like an ocean wave. And it turns out from our double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials at the University of Pittsburgh, that this is exactly the effect that we were able to induce. So you have data that says vibrations on the wrist could work. Do other doctors make fun of you? No, actually, people are very interested in it. That's a funny question. Um, I would say we get, um, we get more criticism from non-scientists because many scientists, there's this really interesting overlap between people who go into medicine and science and music. A lot of us are musicians. Um, our whole original research team were all musicians. So we, when, we, when we came at this originally in the lab, we found that a lot of the information, the background that guided us were studies of the neuroscience of music. And so I started to look at the way that music was interpreted through the ears and by the emotional brain. And what's really interesting about touch and music is they activate the emotional cortex in the brain, which is similar to taste as well, does this, and smell. They activate the emotional cortex before the somatosensory cortex. So what that means is that we interpret safety versus fear before we interpret what does this feel or taste or sound like or smell like, if that makes sense. So by using something like Apollo, we thought, well, if we can go from the bottom up, from the skin first to the emotional brain, then we can send a signal that says, I'm safe before I realize what that safety feels like. And then by the time I realize what it feels like, I realize I can actually do it on my own. And the, the wearable is just, Apollo is helping nudge me into that state. I, I love the way you describe that because the sensations always happen before the thoughts. Right? And then you generally will change the thoughts to match the reality of the sensation, even if the thoughts are wrong. At least that's what I see because I, I do have a neuroscience uh, 
company, <laughs> 40 years of Zen, you know, so I, I actually get to see my own data uh, quite a lot. And if you look back into the womb, right, what did you get? You got slow wave-like vibrations. It's called heartbeats. It's the switching sound of, of your mother's blood and, and breathing and things like that. Those are calming sounds. They, they are for all humans, right? You hit the right frequencies, the right wavelengths and all that. And uh, so when you're mimicking things like that, even it's just going to drop you into a peaceful time. And like you said, it's a nudge. And I definitely notice a difference. You can see it on your sleep score if you're using an aura ring or something like that. You do it before bed and you just go a little bit deeper, which is surprising actually, but it works. And I don't think I walk around with a lot of trauma. Like I, to the point where I, I can feel when there's a little bit of, of resistance, I'm like, hmm, that's weird. But they're all like super small things. Like, oh, why would you know taking this kind of a breath or doing this sort of a thing just have a little tweak and, and just to be observing rather than reacting to it. So I'm, I'm happy with the progress I've made. But still, at that level, for there to be a difference from the Apollo on my wrist is cool. Oh, and, and by the way, I should say this because some people listening are just diehard biohackers. Actually, a lot of people are. Uh, so uh, apolloneuro.com slash Dave Asprey. And uh, Dave's been kind enough to offer you 15% off if you want to pick one of these things up. This is not meant to be an infomercial. It's just that, hey... Uh, this is cool stuff and I talk about cool stuff and if I can save you some money during a pandemic, I'll do it. So thank you for that uh, for our listeners. Oh yeah, and thank you. And I think what's really fascinating just to tap into something you mentioned a second ago is what's so unique about Apollo is that Apollo is not a wearable tracker, really. It's more of a wearable intervention. It's a wearable yeah. therapeutic. So what's really neat about this is it's, it's sort of the first of a third generation of wearables, right? The first generation being basic step counters and things of that nature that don't really give you many insights. They just give you how much did I do? Yeah. Um, how much did I sleep? And then there's the second generation, which is like Apple Watch, Aura Ring, Whoop. They actually give us insights based on that complex data that say, this is how you can change your life based on your data. And then the third generation is things that actually change your body for you to optimize the experience and their measurable outcomes. So what's really interesting is when people, for all the biohackers out there, I think what's really fascinating and fascinating for, for us in particular is that this is a self-validating experiment. If you use Apollo as recommended, you can see, as, as you just said, Dave, that you know you see changes in your sleep as tracked by Oura Ring. We see people falling asleep 50% faster within two weeks. We see 30 to 50% increases in deep sleep and REM sleep within two weeks as measured by the Oura Ring. We see resting heart rate within two weeks drop by 10 points. Think about how much stress you have to have in your in our psychological brains because they're racing about work or racing about what we have to do the next day or what happened the day before. And then you just bring the body, the mind centered back into the present body. And all of a sudden your resting heart rate drops by 10 points. That's incredible. But that's all showing us something that we can achieve on our own. And that technology is really the facilitator of these improved states of health and well-being. You said something really cool about the the state of these trackers. Uh, I was CTO and co-founder of a company called Basis. It was the first Ooh. wristband that could get heart rate off the wrist. And yep. I joined that because really I wanted heart rate variability from the wrist, which we ended up not doing before Intel ended up buying the company. So I guess it was great. Intel ended up shutting it down. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Intel. It's very tricky. Very tricky to do the HRV from the wrist accurately. Oh, it, it is. And you'd have to hold still and all that. And it, it's it's possible. But uh, I, so I look at that and I gave a talk at the early Quantified Self, I think in 2011. And Quantified Self is a, a group for listeners um, where 
people who are doing early health tracking got together. And my talk was like, look, why do you want to track it if you don't want to hack it? And I talked to people, they're saying, look, I've recorded all this data. And what do you do with it? I don't know. I just have the data. It's cool. They're like stamp collectors. And, you know, and by the way, I have some good friends who just, they love collecting their data. But until you can analyze it and do something, and I ended up starting Upgrade Labs, which is a company in LA where what are the interventions we can do that cause the body to recover faster than Mother Nature wants it to? Because I'm so fascinated by it. And the idea that, oh, and they throw an Apollo Neuro on my wrist and look at what it does. And like I said, either it works or it doesn't. And if a separate tracking system like the Aura Ring shows you the changes in your sleep, it's pretty hard to say, oh, that was just placebo. Because if so, then keep doing it. Placebo is useful. Uh, but it's not because you did a double blind uh, clinical. Uh, uh, sure. Double blind. Uh, randomized placebo. Thank you. Randomized. That's, that's the part yeah. of it I was forgetting. Yeah. yeah. The, the not plus, caffeinated enough part, obviously. Yeah. I'm with you there. Placebo is an interesting concept, though, yeah. to think about because placebo is the, is the Western medical term to demean the biology of belief, right? So when we think about belief and placebo, when we mm-hmm. look at it, and also placebo is fascinating, right? This is an idea that has been totally neglected and demeaned in Western medicine. But it, what it really means is that if you believe that a treatment will work for you, a treatment of any kind, red pill versus blue pill, both sugar pills, the red pill always works better. How does that make sense? Because just the power of belief alone accounts for 30 to 50% of the outcomes of our treatments. And similarly, there's a term called nocebo, which mm-hmm. is the, the power that the belief that something will not work for us. And if we, and that's even stronger in a lot of cases than the placebo effect. So we think about shutting treatments down because we don't give them a chance, that's a real thing that we see in our patients all the time. So it's really important not to rely on placebo or belief alone, but to really align our intention to heal with the belief that we can heal. You can literally amplify the effect of your supplements in the morning by looking at them and telling them what they're going to do and taking it. You know who will tell you that? A shaman. The same shaman will say, Dave, before you take the mushrooms... You should talk to them and tell them what you want. And maybe they're listening, right? Or maybe your brain is listening. But it gets weirder too. One of the studies I wrote about, I think in the Bulletproof Diet, uh, when I was talking about the effect of mold toxins on your biology, which by the way are a major cause of chronic stress. If you're in a moldy Mm -hmm. environment, your body doesn't know what's trying to kill you, but something's messing with your cells. Right. There is a cellular level placebo effect uh, that um, Oxford did, uh, at least a study came out of Oxford, what they did is they took a bunch of you know twenty something year old college students, uh, probably all white British ones, um, all male probably, uh, given that that's how it's been in a lot of medical research. But it doesn't matter for this effect. They gave them a weird tasting slimy green drink and said they wanted to just have them taste it and just see what they thought about it. And they put cyclosporin, an immunosuppressant, on it. And then uh, they measured the immune fall that happens afterwards, twenty four hours later, with blood tests. They come in two weeks later. And they give them the same drink without the cyclosporine. They drink it, and they also have the immune suppression Mm. over the next 24 hours. The body learned without them ever knowing that immunity was even involved. Mm -hmm. So there's a training effect that's kind of ridiculous there. Uh, And I think that that goes into a lot of our other stress responses. If If your body mismatches an environmental stimulus with a stress response you're feeling, then all kinds of weird stuff can happen. And that may even... I think, and I want to get your take on this, it may even be behind some of what's going on with EMF sensitivity. 
or with you know, strange allergy things and, and really strong reactions to things like that. Is there validity to that line of thinking where, where the body mismatches stressors and, uh, and, and states? Absolutely. I, I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, that goes back to Eric Kandel's work, right, which is on classical conditioning, habituation and sensitization, which is the classical conditioning being the one of, of interest here, which is if we learn consciously or our bodies learn to associate a neutral stimulus, something that like a soda, you know, or a drink that has no positive or negative impact one way or the other. Um, and then we associate that with something that disrupts our internal environment or our conscious thinking or the way that we consciously feel, then we learn to associate those things in our neural networks. Our neural networks literally get stronger in terms of the way they associate these experiences between one and the other. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that there are more studies, of course, that need to be done in this department, but the the fundamental understanding, thanks to Eric Kandel and all the people who came before him, put into this uh, the uh, you know the mechanism of learning and memory are showing this without a doubt. And getting into something that I know you're interested in, this may even have an impact epigenetically, which we're starting to find out now. And there could be ways to modify the way that our genes are expressed on a much broader level. Um, and actually impact not only ourselves and the way we feel on a longer-term basis, which may very well be the way that psychedelic medicines work, but also impacting the health and well-being of our offspring, which is very, very interesting. All right, let's go deeper in psychedelics. Uh, one of the things that you did that I found really impressive was you're the co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine, and you guys established the first peer-reviewed evidence-based clinical guidelines for making, selling, and using unregulated medicines. Okay, I'm so happy about that. Tell me how you can do that, because there's a bunch of unregulated medicines I either do use or would like to use, uh, and uh, I don't necessarily mean illegal ones. I just mean unregulated. So talk to me about that. So, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier about the Hippocratic Oath, you know, I think we really prioritize giving our patients and our clients who are seeking care and also ourselves who, you know, as physicians, we need, we need good health too, um, op opportunities to use whatever medicines might be available to us. Ideally, starting with, starting with the techniques, and it doesn't have to be medicine, it could be medicine or therapy or breath work or meditation, but starting with things that have the least likelihood of causing harm and the greatest likelihood of causing benefit. Um, and then working our way up as needed. So what we've noticed, the group of board members uh, at the Board of Medicine has noticed that, you know, over the years, this has kind of been forgotten about. And we too frequent, all too frequently rely on prescription of uh, FDA approved medicine or medicines that are off label that are prescription that might cause more harm because that's what our guidelines and our books say, which don't actually take into account all the plant medicines and the supplements that are available that can be used safely, um, and also natural techniques like breathwork, right? Breathwork is, in, is one of the most powerful techniques for controlling and managing homeostasis or the balance between our stress response and our recovery response nervous systems. But how many people know how to do breathwork properly? I never learned it in medical school. Are you kidding? Like, it's not something that we even talk about. Um, so we just, the way they teach this to us is, Oh, there's two parts of the nervous system. They do their own thing on their own. They rarely dysfunction. Don't worry about it. You know. I wish and they rarely that, dysfunctioned. I mean, it couldn't be further from the truth. There's okay. so much more to that story. And all right, so, all right, tell me about just the best breath. So, so breath work. It, I mean, 
you can, you can, in fact, there have been entire books written on breath work. I've had Stan mm-hmm. Groff do holotropic breathing. Mm-hmm. He's been on the show. I actually did an event with him. I've breathed with him several times. Uh, but that's okay. Go trip balls kind of breathing uh, like you would do with ketamine or something. So what is the kind of breath work that is most effective for stress relief for people right now? So that's a good question. I, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I personally truly believe that I don't think there's one form of yeah. breathing that works best for everyone. You're right. Um, I think it's a very personal thing. It's like, and that's why meditation is so hard to learn is because we're often trying to meditate in a way that someone else tells us to do rather than seeking it on our own um, and seeking what meditation means for us. So I think part of breathing is really just doing it intentionally to start, which means focusing as much of our attention as possible on the feeling of breath coming into our nose and our mouth, ideally nose over mouth, but they're both fine to start. And just focusing our attention as much as possible on that feeling of air coming in and filling our windpipe and our lungs and just being present with that feeling more than anything else and allowing that feeling to permeate our entire bodies and then holding a little bit as we finish the inhale and then releasing the breath and then repeating a little bit over and over again. I can tell you that, you know, that, that those guidelines are, are the best that work for most people because it creates some flexibility. But my, to answer your question, my favorite breathing technique is, uh, one that is, I, I actually don't know the name of it because I, speaking of finding breathing on your own, I found this on my own, uh, when I was having a lot of anxiety and I realized that by breathing with, and I had a lot of trouble learning how to breathe deep breathe through my nose. Um, and I couldn't control airflow very well. I was a huge novice at it. And so what I realized is I like to whistle. And so I realized that if I purse my lips and we also recommend this technique to people with emphysema and COPD to help them breathe more, more freely, and I realized that if I use the same technique I recommended to my patients, which is effectively breathing through pursed lips like a whistle, but without making a sound or inhaling, imagine inhaling through a straw, mm-hmm. then you can control the airflow with your lips at, in, in the moment. And so what I would do is I would, in, I would inhale through my lips to start and I would try to make the airflow as tight as possible for like a five or 10 second inhale and then hold for two seconds and then release through my mouth with the same pursed lips for 10 seconds, hold for two seconds, and then just keep doing that and trying to make my inhales and my exhales as long as I possibly could. And the longer that they got, the more that my mind quieted. So that was the technique that worked best for me. It's very similar to Andrew Wiles. Uh, technique mm-hmm. and, and he's been on the show we actually did an episode at his restaurant true foods kitchen it was really cool and incredible place. He, especially the purse lips part is, is a big part of his technique uh, which has validity and with yours what's really interesting is that your uh, carbon dioxide levels go up when you uh, hold the lungs empty or when you breathe out really slowly and when your co2 levels go up cerebral blood flow and oxygenation go up which is calming for the brain. You know, it's surprising a lot of people aren't familiar with that correlation between the two. And uh, I I learned this many years ago using a capnometer, where you're actually able to measure the CO2 mix and oxygen mix in the uh, in the air that you breathe out. It's a little thing that kind of sticks in your nose and samples the air. And it it's very fascinating that you have this ability to tweak. And I figured out too from doing yoga, I had a really strong stress response where I would breathe until my lungs were empty. And then immediately it was like, ah, I'm gonna die. Like, actually, if you measure my blood oxygen, I'm not gonna die. I have like two, three minutes here. But right away, Mm -hmm. I was like, no, you have to breathe right now. And just telling it to calm the F down. 
like, okay, now you're just going to learn to sit with the lungs empty and it's going to be all right. It really lowered my overall stress response. If there's some dumb little voice in my head saying, take a breath, you're going to die. Take a breath, you're going to die. You're like, could you just shut up and stop bothering me? And, and so the peace that I got from learning how to just like breathe out and, and like you're saying, I think it was really valuable. And, and there's, uh, in fact, uh, James Nestor is going to come on soon and talk about that. I just wrote the book, Breathe. And um, so your technique of 10 out, and then two, okay, you're probably just going, you have to live 12 seconds without inhaling. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that is part of what's bringing you a sense of calmness from it? Do you think that's it? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's it's multifactorial, right? So it goes back to the same way that Apollo and touch and music work, which is that as I'm breathing in intentionally, again, the intentional breath being the mm-hmm. most critical part, however you decide to breathe, is that as you breathe intentionally, it instantly sends a signal to our brains that says, if I have the time right now to pay attention to the feeling of this air coming into my nose and mouth and down into my lungs, I can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. And for example, if you have time to pay attention to how empty your lungs feel, you know that that little voice that's going on in the back of your head can shut up because it's not warranted, right? You're not actually in danger. And that voice is like this vestigial uh, voice that sits there in the back of all of our minds, mm-hmm. um, or maybe in, maybe more in the front by, you know, neurophysiologically, if we're talking about the amygdala, but basically it's sitting there because we have had trauma and we have had negative things happen to us. And we've been in situations where we feel out of control. So part of why breath is such an interesting technique and, and similarly why we designed Apollo the way we did and pairing breath and Apollo works incredibly well together, especially for people who are learning to deep breathe for the first time. Um, these things help us to restore a sense of control and agency in the present moment by bringing us back to our bodies. Our minds can be anywhere. They can be the past, they can be in the present or the future. But if we're not conscious of where they are, then they're generally in the past or the future. So by focusing on that breath, focusing on the feeling of soothing touch, uh, it instantly brings us back into our bodies, which helps us center us firmly in the present, which is literally the place where we have the most control of what's going on in our lives. That's uh, that's actually pretty amazing. So that the side effect of, of that is just being in the present versus the passive future. I hadn't thought of it for breathing, but of course it makes sense. All right, I'm going to end part one of our interview now, and we're going to move in the next episode to part two uh, because there's just too much good stuff here. We could have just a single episode about psychedelics or a single episode about vibration, but we've got epigenetics. We've got some intriguing questions, conversations about COVID. So it's just worth your time for two episodes. Coming up next, part two. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services.
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.